Today, I want to continue talking a little bit about the reportage model and my particular version of the reportage model and inerrancy. I think inerrancy is a topic that interests people. And I think that people are interested to see how other positions uh, fit with inerrancy, don't fit with inerrancy, uh, whether they can be consistently maintained and so forth. And so I'm taking this opportunity, kind of a little series to answer some of those questions. Today, what I want to do is to answer an attempted two quote way, as it's called, that could be brought or someone could try to bring against my particular version of the reportage model. You'll remember last time that we learned that within the reportage model, there is room for uh, views that are not inerrancy, but that hold that the gospels are highly reliable, but that if you are a traditional inerrantist, you are a believer in the reportage model. So all believers in traditional inerrancy believe in the reportage model, but not everybody who accepts the reportage model accepts inerrancy. It only goes one direction. We talked about that last time. Now, a Tukwokwe is a kind of uh, attempted attack against a position that is often said to be a fallacy because just because your view has the same problem as the view, view that you criticize. It doesn't follow that either of them is wrong. It may be that you just have to accept that cost. But what it's often used for is to show that you can't hold your view consistently while criticizing the other view in a particular way. So it tries to put the person who holds a view in a kind of a, a bind or a dilemma. In this case, the idea would be to say to me that uh, my position of not being an inerrantist, but holding that the Gospels are highly reliable while criticizing the compositional device views is inconsistent and inherently unstable because the claim would be, I supposedly have just as much of a problem with the undermining the reliability of the Gospels as those with the compositional device views since I allow for errors. So how do we know they're not everywhere and so forth. I want to encourage you, if you're interested in this topic, I say more about the compositional device view and the connection with reliability in a video called The Device Dilemma, which I'm going to link below in the show notes. So please do watch that for more information on that and on why uh, the literary device theorist does not have the option of arbitrarily saying, well, let's just say it's only a few, so it's okay. And when I say uh, the Gospels are highly reliable, I'm trying to make an inductive argument that they are highly reliable. I'm not just stipulating that. And I'll say a little bit more about that as I go on. So, someone, but someone might try to say, you know, Lydia, you have to either be an inerrantist, which apparently you don't want to be, and then defend that in some kind of a priori way, or you should admit that you have as much of a problem as the compositional device theorists do with undermining gospel reliability, in which case you're in no place to talk. You're being inconsistent. So that's what I'm trying to answer here. Um, one of the things that I say when I talk about the compositional device views, you'll see this in the video I'm linking below, has to do with it being part and parcel of the genre. And let's see how that plays in the analogy I'm about to make. Those of you who follow my work may have seen this analogy before to a courtroom witness. And 
maybe you'll enjoy seeing it again. But if you haven't seen it before, here's how it goes. Suppose that you are on a jury and there's a witness who's brought into court and he's talking about some events, maybe the crime that he's testifying about. And he says, uh, it happened on a Wednesday. Okay, that happened on a Wednesday. And the opposing lawyer gets up and he starts cross-questioning him and he presses him and he says, tries to get him to admit that he's made some kind of mistake. And in particular, the opposing lawyer pushes on the idea that it happened on a Wednesday and he says, no, 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 no. You know, whatever the incident was that happened, it happened on a Saturday. And maybe he dismisses that witness temporarily, brings up other witnesses, and he, they contradict him. They say it happened on a Saturday. So then he, he calls back the original witness. Of course, the goal is to undermine the reliability of this witness, right? To say, we shouldn't believe you about the other things you say about this incident if you got the day wrong. And he really presses him and confronts him with a contradiction. And so now, at this point, the person's going to admit that it happened on a Saturday instead of a Wednesday, okay? But our, our, our two scenarios are gonna diverge and I'm gonna call one of them scenario A and one of them scenario B. In scenario A, imagine our witness and he's forced to admit that he got the day wrong. And he says, oh, you're right. I got that day wrong because we went to the same restaurant on those two days. They were similar in these other respects and it's, it's been a little while and that's why I got confused about it. I admit you're right, but it was, you know, it was a mistake. I apologize. That's scenario A. Now, naturally the opposing lawyer is gonna jump on that. He's gonna say, well, if you got that wrong, maybe you got something else wrong. Uh, but the, the jury, uh, may actually be impressed by the witness's honesty in admitting that he got it wrong. And the jury recognizes that it doesn't really follow that he's got a bunch of other things wrong. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Now let's say, what is scenario B? Well, in scenario B, the witness also admits that he got the day wrong, but he says, yeah, I knew it was wrong all along. I changed it on purpose to make a better story because I could make it sort of flow better with some other things that happened that day and it had a kind of symbolism for me or whatever. All right. Now you're on the jury. Imagine these two possible scenarios. Which of these is going to lead you to distrust that witness more? Scenario A or scenario B as far as his other statements? Obviously, scenario B, right? For one thing, the person in scenario B is not infallible now, so he could also make accidental mistakes. But we've added this other complete wild card, which is his private notion of what makes a better story. And we've seen that he isn't overly bound to truth because after all, you know, you, you thought he was telling the truth about the day or you would have been inclined to, but he now admits that he just changed it because he thought it made a better story. And he didn't really care that he might confuse people about that. And who knows what else he's doing? I mean, if I were the opposing lawyer, I would regard witness B as a gift from heaven. I mean, man, you know, he'd go to town with that. Of course, he's going to try to go to town with either of them. But witness B is even more of a gift to the opposing counsel. And of course, whoever put him up as a witness, you know, for their side is just going to be face palming and say, oh, no, you know, what have we done? 
Okay. Now you can see where this is going. Scenario A corresponds to a, uh, an, uh, a person who is not an inerrantist, but uh, holds that the Gospels are reliable. In other words, my view of the Gospels is like the view of the witness in scenario A. Whereas the view of the Gospels of the compositional device theorist corresponds more to scenario B. We could add that they're claiming that there's some genre of testimony where you're allowed to make stuff up. I mean, that is their claim. And I have answered that in the mirror of the mask. Please get a hold of a copy if you're interested. But the point is that scenario A corresponds to something we're very familiar with that we can nonetheless trust. In our lives, we know of people who are fallible. Okay, this witness is fallible. He's obviously fallible. He made a mistake. Okay, but nonetheless, they're highly reliable. They, they rarely make mistakes. And let's suppose, just for the, for the sake of spinning this out a little more, that you know this witness. Now, you probably have gotten kicked off the jury already in a realistic scenario, but let's pretend that that didn't happen. You're on the jury, you know this guy, and you know that he tries to be careful. You know that when it's something quite recent, he has a good memory and that kind of thing. You found him to be truthful before and to get things right before. You already knew he was fallible. This this discovery is not going to change very much your opinion of him. And if he if you trusted him already so that his testimony had weight considerable weight in favor of what he testified, it's still going to have approximately that same amount of weight when you discover that he made this, this error. But with scenario B, that's a very radical difference because frankly, at that point, all bets are off. We do not know how often he's going to want to do that. We don't have a, a, a control, an objective control for when this person is going to think it makes a better story and so forth. And that could be quite often. And as I pointed out, if that's supposed to be part and parcel of the genre, we would not expect it to just be one or two things. And so it tends to spread far more to the rest of his testimony and so far more distrust than the error made in an ordinary fashion that we already understand, we have experience of, and we're already sort of allowing for in scenario A. So this is why the Tukwokwe fails, okay? This is why someone who is in that, that space that I showed in the diagram last week, where you're uh, holding to the reportage model, but you're outside of in the inerrancy oval, uh, that person is not being inconsistent when he criticizes the compositional device view on the grounds that it undermines reliability. But that person is not per se undermining reliability as, as much as they are, okay? Now, obviously, if something is fallible, it's not 100% reliable. So you could say it's not as reliable as if you assume that it's inerrant, but there's the question of whether inerrancy can be defended or not. So if, if you think it can't, you could nonetheless have a very consistent and uh, justifiable position that would leave the Gospels nonetheless as very highly reliable on historical factual matters 
um, more so, far more so than the view that says they were written in a genre such that it was part and parcel of that genre for them sometimes to alter things. Even if that person specifies, well, they were on important things and so forth. I've talked about what some of these were. Um, you may disagree with those theorists about whether they were important or not, but in any event, almost anything that they consider to be a detail then becomes up for grabs. And we see that in their own practice. And I give more examples of this and how this leads to what I call unforced errors in the device dilemma below. Now, let me emphasize, none of this tells you who's right and who's wrong. If the compositional device views were true, we'd have to take it on the chin. We'd have to lump it. We'd have to say, oh, well, you know, I guess the Gospels aren't really all that reliable. But I would say in that case, that's exactly what we should say. Okay, I guess they weren't all that reliable. We should admit what we're accepting. I have argued that those views do not stand the test of investigation. It's not just that they oppose some a priori theological commitment. They don't stand up to investigation, and that's a good thing. But what this is showing you is that oh, something is at stake. And so part of my motive here is to encourage you, if you're interested, not to accept such views lightly, not to say they're unimportant, they don't matter, they wouldn't really change your, your view very much. And if you're an inerrantist in particular, don't say to yourself, why should I listen to her? She's an errantist. She uh, doesn't think that the Gospels are 100% true anyway. Uh, a pox on both your houses, what is there to choose between you? Let me tell you, I'm giving arguments and reasons that are relevant and that you can give to other people who don't assume inerrancy themselves, but nonetheless show that the Gospels are very highly reliable, which is important, and which indirectly, inductively, could support your own view as well, even though I am not an inerrantist and you are. So there is something to choose between, and there is something at stake it's an important issue if the reliability of the Gospels is an important issue. Next time, I've decided I'm going to talk about the centurion. Uh, the centurion incident in the Gospels is what I think of as a sort of a gateway. I might even say a gateway drug uh, or a bridge from uh, a kind of traditional inerrancy over to a compositional device view. And I think some people have crossed that bridge without even realizing that they crossed it. And this is because of some term equivocation that goes on. And this is because of some ways of describing what's going on in that centurion incident that uh, may not be clear to you exactly what's being proposed. It's also a result, I must say, of the fact that it's a difficult incident on a small, relatively small matter, but still to harmonize the accounts. I myself take it that this is probably one of those cases where uh, one of the gospel authors, I tend to think Matthew, made a uh, minor good faith error because he had not yet been called as a disciple yet. And I think if you are an inerrantist, it's good to confront the difficulties of harmonization there instead of assuming that they're easily disposed of by some term like transferal and that you're still 
retaining your inerrancy. It's better to at least face the difficulties with harmonization so that if you still want to hold on to harmonization, you're doing that with a full knowledge of what's going on and you don't accept uh, solutions that might not really be solutions. So that's what I'm going to talk about next time. Thanks for watching. Come back next time and watch the Lydia McGrew YouTube channel. Please subscribe. Please hit the bell for notifications. Please share. Please invite other people to subscribe to come here to this channel where we're making common sense rigorous.